topic is education as exodus. <clears throat> it's an admonition to parents. Don't leave your children in Egypt. That's, what, that's the topic I want to cover uh, today. Now, you know, even to this day, and I think about these kinds of things, I find myself thinking how incredible it really is that we as parents <clears throat> might be able through teaching and training, through a provision and a supervision that comes from, comes from above, that we might even be able to participate in, you know, the, in God's eternal purpose, God's educational purposes and God's parenting purposes uh, for his kingdom here on the earth. And it's my hope <clears throat> that each of us we're going to come to see, if, if, if you haven't already, that there's a way of thinking and there's a way of deciding and there's a way of educating that's absolutely forbidden to mankind. Okay? Conversely, there is such a thing as a true, authentic Christian education that God holds out to us. Uh, he encourages us towards, He even encourages us to, to embrace and even commands, you know, that, that parents are, are to bequeath, that is to give and confer, you know, to their children. Now, over the, oh, I don't know, last four decades, I guess, I've come to believe many new and revelatory truths regarding education. And what has basically emerged for me over this, over this extended period of time is an unfolding perspective of, uh, of God's patterns and, and context regarding the teaching and training of both the parent and the children. Okay? In other words, Christian education is not just about teaching children. And it wasn't from the beginning. It's always been in God's mind that the parent and the child would interact in this. And uh, it's been that way all along. And uh, now my understanding and my convictions on education are largely based on two cardinal works. Uh, that were written by Brother Blair. And I think I know Brother Joel and Brother Howard and maybe others assisted him. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but it, I was going to say Education Exodus. When I first received my copy, it was Who Owns the Children? And that was a, I don't remember how many years ago. But anyway, it's now Education Exodus. And the second book was Wisdom's Children. And, and then a little bit later on, I would add uh, Building Christian Character to that. But I found these works <clears throat> to be life-changing. And I'm not just, I'm not just saying that because uh, I couldn't think of anything else to say. I'm saying it because these books changed my life. And uh, they, are, they, were, they were revelatory, they were thorough, they were exemplary, as near as I, I know. So part of I, what I want you to hear a little bit here is, and, and that I want to do, I want to give a little bit of personal testimony of how these works change my understanding and my conviction regarding education and how they serve to adjust my course, uh, my life's course, actually, from being a parent and an educator uh, who started out as a restless wanderer on this earth some uh, 50, 50 years ago, as well as a modern-day prodigal, and changed all that to be a pilgrim in search of God's land of promise. So I seek to speak clearly here and, uh, and forthrightly from a heart of gratitude to God and to his servants who saw the various 
theological and philosophical and legal conflicts and issues that were involved and were willing to seek the Lord to determine his truth, his patterns, and encapsulate that in, a, in, in books and, and a life that, that uh, I was privileged to get to know. And any <clears throat> distortions or errors in, uh, in my attempt to summarize and communicate what, this, what the Lord has actually given to this community, that failure is mine. And so, anyway, I simply want to encourage you to seek the Lord for his wisdom and to lay hold, both in principle and in practice, the vision of Christian parenting and Christian education. And I have a hope here that each of us will do our part individually, collectively, you know, to bring authentic Christian education home, home to the family and to a local community of covenanted believers where it belongs. Uh, and in addition, I will say this, if, I haven't said, if, you, if this hasn't happened already, that you will come to see that there's a difference between an authentic Christian education versus what I choose to call a secular humanistic miseducation. Okay? And the differences cannot be overstated. Okay? They can't be overstated because these two philosophies are rooted in two kingdoms in relentless conflict and they give rise to two educational philosophies also in relentless conflict. So, they're radical opposites, they're incongruous, they're irreconcilable. So, I pray for you that you'll seek to be taught by the Lord with this goal. That when you're fully trained, you'll be like your teacher in Luke 6. And when others look at your life and they look at your children, they're going to be astonished. And they'll take note that you've been with the Lord. I think that's Acts 4. I believe it is. And your witness will be spoken of by Isaiah. That when they see among them their children, the works of your hands, they'll keep my name holy. And will acknowledge the holiness of the Holy One of Jacob. And will stand, you know what the word is? Stand in awe of the God of Israel. So that's my hope for you. Now I want to I want to say something in a particular way, and because I want it to come out in a particular way, I'm going to I'm going to read a, a couple sentences to you here. For the most part, it appears that Christian parenting and Christian education is increasingly being absorbed, along with many other Christian principles, ideals, and and patterns, and being assimilated into this great amorphous entity out there that's called the world. It's a world that lurches forward towards its final end in step with the current trends and forces that are out there that trigger and drive an unraveling moral and cultural fabric of today. As a result, the patterns, the information, the, the attitudes, the basic tenets of, of that world are pouring into many modern-day churches so fast that it's compromised faith and its values, its beliefs, its witness can no longer be a, a foundation, can serve as a foundation or a reciprocal to true authentic Christian education and all that that entails. Now, 
Education, according to Webster's dictionary, comes from a Latin root. It means to lead out. But the question would be, lead out of what? For the believer, at least on the individual level, uh, it would certainly include a leading out of, out of man's fallen predicament. Okay? It certainly would include that. And that would happen through a rebirth. It would happen through a radical change in a person's spiritual center. It was going to include recognizing Satan's scheme and to tempt and trick mankind, to exalt himself to a place of godhood, uh, to rely on his own, our own rational mind, if you will, uh, and the works of his own hands. Then on the corporate level, or cultural level, it would mean an exodus from these kingdoms and these institutions of this world, so as to become a citizen in a totally different kingdom, the kingdom of God, which we've been, we've been talking about here in the last couple of days. Now, God is leading us out. He's educating us out, in one sense, as he seeks to undo the neutralization and the homogenization of his people that has come because of man's intent to mix little tidbits and fragments and such of God's word, God's wisdom, with the fallen wisdom of this world, mixing those two things. I think that's what James 3 is talking about there. And why is that important? Because when, when education truly centers in God, when it truly centers in God, it serves as a course of deliverance. It's a deliverance from the increasingly strange soil of today's secular culture. That's, I think that's in uh, Psalms what, 137, something like that. Now, in more recent years, this path of deliverance uh, has sometimes begun for many parents when they begin be become enlightened and begin to see the problems that's inherent to forced government schooling. Okay? And even in my lifetime, God has used Christian schools and the Christian homeschool movement as an example to initiate concrete steps, initially, concrete steps of, of separation. Yet in spite of movements even like these, uh, unfortunately, most of the church today is being swept away and pulled by the inertia of uh, uh, the world. I mean, the church <clears throat> out there still looks to secular public schooling schools to teach and train their children, right? Social programs to care for their orphans and their widow, widows. We have our nursing homes and such to take care of and tend, for our, tend to our aged. We have man's corporations to provide their income, food conglomerates to provide their daily bread, financial institutions to meet the contingencies and so forth. And almost without noticing, Christians have become dependent on the very institutions that they'd hoped and even assumed would free them. Now, I want to briefly answer a couple of questions here. One of those is what forms your educational views or mine, educational views and practices? What forms that? And secondly, where is it that you really see yourselves living and rooted? In your hearts, I'm talking about. Now, as one 
was trained in secular schooling. I served as a public school, I was a high school business teacher and baseball coach and elementary principal and, and so on and so on, assistant superintendent when I, when I got out of the public schools or left the public schools. Uh, it took a great deal to convince me, I mean, it took a great deal to convince me that compulsory secular schooling was not the course suited for thinking responsible children, much less Christian children. It took a great deal. Now, I've come through that. So I understand a little bit about the nature of the educational conflict and the parental dilemma that families face today. And at times, honestly, I really do empathize with, with, with parents who, they don't even see that they should be wrestling with these very difficult dialectic issues and questions that are, are all around them. They just can't see, they can't hear, they can't feel what's going on. They, so they don't even see that there's tough questions that they, they, need, to be, they need to answer, you know, relating, their, relating to their kids. And I also recognize that often parents who begin providing some kind of Christian education for their kids, homeschooling being one example, uh, they merely see it as a more acceptable academic alternative. You know, it's a better schooling. They don't see homeschooling as a more appropriate alternative, which it is, but neither do they see that this question of education and your, your, your attitudes towards it are God-ordered, they're God-commanded, and they need to be based on personal convictions that are based on, founded on religious and spiritual considerations. Now, regardless what my experience gives me, my hope is that serious, think, serious seekers are going to kind of see what it is that forms their educational philosophy. Now, part of that answer uh, as to what forms a person's educational philosophy, uh, you have to be able to see it in the relationship between religion, culture, and some of which Brother Dan talked about yesterday or the day before, and education. So it's a relationship between religion, culture, and education. Uh, Religion being what we truly believe, those things that we truly value, those things that bind people together in a common faith and a common, common vision. Culture is the social context or the environment in which we see ourselves living and rooted. And education then means, it's the means by which these beliefs and these values and uh, these standards of success and knowledge and so forth are transmitted to the next generation. Okay? Now, while most Christians remain blind to that principle, uh, even contemporary scholars uh, recognize it to be true. It's a, they, they, they recognize this, this link that exists between what we believe and what we value on one hand, where we see ourselves living and rooted on the other, and the character of the education that we develop for our children or expose our children to. Now an example is, uh, is, is a, something I took from, uh, I think what I'm going to read here is both in Wisdom's Children and Education Nexus, I'm pretty sure it is. But anyway, the brothers took a writing from a, <clears throat> excuse me, from a publication of Columbia Teachers College, it was a, Will Philip Phoenix was the author of this, and I, I want to read this to you. And listen to what's being said here. Not only does religion 
provide the ultimate foundation for education, but education provides the admirable field of implementing religious commitments. Okay, thus making faith explicit in a concrete act. That's pretty insightful. He goes on to say, a significant test of the governing religious convictions of a person or a group, and I'll put parents, it doesn't say that, I inserted that, the significant test of a governing religious convictions of a person or a group is the character of the education promoted by that person and by that group. Now, Dr. Inlow, this is a second quote. He, he was Northwestern University, I think. But, but anyway, he explains that a social group first decides what in a culture is important and then has formal education to transmit it to the young. Most fundamentally, education transmits the values that the social order lives by. Okay? In other words, education is transmitted religion Culture is lived religion, and both education and culture are reciprocal to one's true religion. That makes sense? Okay. And that's what binds people together in a common faith and a common vision and a common culture. Now, and that's the first question. What forms a, our, our educational philosophy? Second question is, where do you see yourselves living and rooted, really? Where do you see yourselves living? In your heart, where do you see, see yourselves residing? Is it in the kingdom of God, on one hand? Kingdom and institutions of the world, on the other? One foot in, one foot out? Suspended between the two? Well, the point is, is that how you answer that question is going to determine, or at least influence, your educational philosophy. Over the years, <clears throat> I've heard parents even many Christian parents say, make this statement, I want my children to be successful in the real world. Haven't you ever heard that? Have you heard that? I want my children to be successful out there in the real world. Well, ordinarily what they mean is they want their children to be able to compete successfully in this culture that's all around us out here. Uh, they, want, they want their kids to compete in schools and in businesses and government agencies and those kinds of things. They want them to be adept, you know, socially, educationally, athletically, economically, politically. They want their children to be able to carve out their niche, you know, to accumulate their fair share, to hold their own in this world. That's what they usually mean, seems like to me. After all, don't we want our children to be successful? Hmm? Well, of course we do. We want our children to be successful. It just depends how you define success and which kingdom you seek to find your successes. That's the question. Now, of course, we do want our children to develop their you know, their God-given abilities and callings and talents and all that. We want them to sell everything they do as unto the Lord. Right? Playing, whether that's playing a musical instrument or studying their history or learning their math facts or writing paragraphs or 
doing handcrafts or any other skill that God would have them put their hand to. You know, we want them to have good homes, you know, provide for their families and provide people with have needs. Uh, we want them to elicit respect, both from those inside the church and outside the church. Above all, it seems like to me, we want them to pursue the will of God for their lives. Ultimately, we want them prepared for that final rite of passage, which ends life on earth. So the focus for teaching and training tasks, I just simply said, is to bring forth fruit that's going to remain. Okay? To have the Lord declare, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now, having failed to recognize the spiritual nature of education, many Christians see themselves not only living, but also rooted in this world, which the scripture symbolizes as Egypt or as Babylon and other terms. And this rootedness explains exactly why the majority of Christian parents still send their children to the world to be taught and trained. I'll say it again. The root, this rootedness explains why the majority of Christian parents send their children to the world for their training. Now remember, Dr. Phoenix and Dr. Enlow basically says that they can tell what a per person or a parent or a group ultimately believes by the way they choose to teach and train their children, educate their children, because it reveals the rootedness of their hearts. You believe that? I do. It also reveals the kingdom which they ultimately seek citizenship. Unless, I'm going to qualify this, unless God is bringing, beginning to open their eyes, beginning to open their hearts, open their minds to the need for an exodus, for a lifelong pilgrimage in search and en route to God's land of promise. Then, when that begins to happen, things are fixing to change in their life. When that truly is what's in their heart, things are beginning to change in their life. As God moves to change the spiritual center of a person's life, the reciprocal to that is going to be their educational views and practices are going to change accordingly, as it did in my life. Now, with that in mind, uh, let's talk about the, the topic at hand, education, so don't leave your children in Egypt. The scriptures clarify the nature of a believer's proper relationship with the world in many places. But one place in particular, pertinent here, I think, is, describes the conflict between Moses and Pharaoh, <clears throat> which is recorded in Exodus 3. Okay. Now, I want to insert something here. Uh, th this is coming from Genesis 49, which is in the scriptures. It's like four three or four chapters ahead of what I'm going to talk about in Exodus 3. But this comes from Genesis 49 and 50. And I want to share this because I think this scripture gives us a glimpse of how advanced the assimilation was of the Israelite people into the Egyptian culture. Just how advanced that assimilation has become. Uh, the homogenization, the, the intermixing, the absorption. So let me read this to you. This is, uh, this is Genesis 49, beginning with verse 33. When Jacob had finished giving instruction to his sons, 
He drew, he drew his feet up into bed. He breathed his last, and he was gathered to his people. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him, and he kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm the father. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, which was, was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's courts, he said, if I found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him my father made me swear on an oath. He said, I'm about to die. Bury me in the tomb that I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now, let me go, bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, go up, bury your father, as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went, to, went up to bury his father, and now listen to this. All of Pharaoh's officials accompanied him. All the dignitaries of his court, all the dignitaries of Egypt. Besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers, and these belonging to the father's house, only their children and their flocks and their herds were left in Goshen. Now we're going to come back to that in a little bit. Only their children and their flocks and their herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with them. It was a very large company. Okay? When they reached the threshing floor, which was near the Jordan, they lamented this large company, lamented loudly and bitterly. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. Now listen to this. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning, they said, hmm, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. How does that strike you? The Egyptians, this large company, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. So how does that strike you? I mean, could it be the Israelites were simply indistinguishable from the Egyptians? At least the assimilation had become well advanced. Okay? Now, I wrote this little note. I said, well advanced, or perhaps this is a commentary on the degree to which the Israelites had forfeited or were losing their unique identity as the people of God. As they had violated their promise of total consecration to the Lord and to his patterns. The very things that would have prevented them from being, being like the pagan nations that surrounded them. The very thing if they had just obeyed. Now, we'll go on here. Then in Genesis 50, we're moving towards Exodus 3 here. Joseph dies. And then in Exodus 1, uh, 8 or 10 or something like that, it says a new Pharaoh came to power that knew not Joseph. Okay? And <clears throat> suddenly, well, in, in the meantime here, the Israelites had been multiplying. They had been, they had, they become fruitful in that land. And, and, but to this new Pharaoh, they were viewed as a threat. Okay? So and then it says that the new Pharaoh then oppressed them with forced labor. Then he sought to kill 
the newborn male babies. The Israelites begin to groan under their oppression. They cried out to God. And then the scriptures comment that the Lord heard them and he remembered his covenant. And then in chapter 3, God called Moses to lead them out. Now, what about the church today? I mean, I'm not expecting you to answer, except in your own heart. What about the church today? Isn't it time we left Egypt behind? And doesn't that mean, or doesn't that have implications, let me put it that way, for how we teach and train our children? Well, let's see. In Exodus 3, verse 18, Moses, uh, Moses told Pharaoh, or I'm, I'm sorry, Moses asked Pharaoh uh, for permission to take a three-day journey into the wilderness to sacrifice. That's what he, that's what, that was the request that he presented there. Take a three-day journey into the wilderness to sacrifice. And as you know, probably, uh, Pharaoh said no. He refused, and therefore the plagues began. Then throughout the course of events, Pharaoh offered come back with three compromises that I think are pertinent to a little of what I was trying to say a minute ago. These three compromises relate directly, in fact, to what we were discussing. Now, the first compromise is in Exodus 8, 25 through 28. And here, basically, Pharaoh gave Moses permission to go sacrifice as, as God had commanded. Yes, go sacrifice, but he suggested, what? Do it here in the land, verse 25. Or at least, don't go very far away, verse 28. Okay? That is, go ahead and fill the commands of God. Just do it right here in Egypt. Now, to me, this presents a pretty accurate picture of the cultural rootedness of much of today's modern-day church. Christians attempt to obey God's orders while their hearts and their lives remain where? In Egypt. They sacrifice to God, but they want to do it here in the land. And Christians regularly take three-day three day excursions, three-day journeys into the wilderness to sacrifice. And then they go on Wednesday nights. They go Sunday mornings. They go Sunday nights. They take these little short excursions into the wilderness for the sake of religion. Bible study and praise and worship and evangelism and teaching. Now, don't misunderstand me. I, 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 they may be very, very serious about that part of their life. In fact, most of them, a lot of them are. They're very, they, they wouldn't ever think about giving it up or maybe they hadn't thought about it much, but they would at least say that. I'd never give that up. The, the point is, it's an important part. It's an important part of their life. Okay? The problem, however, <clears throat> is that for the most part, they may still see themselves living and rooted in Egypt. 
That is, in the world. Okay? They commute in the wilderness not to live, but merely to sacrifice. And when the final amen is over, they rush back to where they really see themselves living and rooted. Or at least that's my perspective. When the final amen is over, they rush back to where they really see themselves living and rooted. Even secular polls have, have noted that when you compare many Christian families with unbelieving families, you virtually can't tell them apart. Secular polls, secular com commentators. Now, they may have a, an agenda for their conclusions, but I think they're right, especially in light of the Canaanites that I just spoke about earlier. You virtually can't tell them apart, right? They got the same beat to their music, same preoccupations, same fashions, same ambitions. In fact, and this is the point I'm wanting to get to, in fact, the church remains so close to the world that it fails to see the need to educate differently. Okay? And their values are so similar that they don't mind being yoked together educationally, informed by the same information, and informed, formed within by the same informing authority. So the question remains, where do you see yourself living and rooted? Now, if someone sees themselves rooted there, then likely they may not only be in Egypt, but on some level, they may be of it. Egypt has become their home. It's become part of their identity. Now, after Moses rebuffed Pharaoh's first effort, then in Exodus 10, 8 through 11, Pharaoh suggested a second compromise. Now, what I want to focus on there, basically Pharaoh said, leave your children in Egypt. Now, this compromise may appeal even, I don't know, to some Christians. Why? Because outwardly, they may have rejected outwardly their former life, you know, in some way or another. Uh, but at the same time, they still may harbor desires for success in the world. And they desire it for their, themselves, and they desire it for their children. Now, a problem arises here. Because once children are trained to be successful in Egypt, they more often than not, when they get old enough to decide for themselves, they'll refuse to leave the land. Once they've been trained in Egyptian schools, entertained by Egyptian books and movies, indulged in Egypt's delicacies and pleasures, socialized by Egyptian friends, saturated by Egyptian values, ideals, and philosophies, hmm? taught to covet Egypt's prosperity, and then awestruck by Egypt's invention. Then they will very often refuse to even take short excursions 
into the wilderness to sacrifice. They decide to even take the short excursions into the wilderness to sacrifice. Why? Because they become Egyptians through and through. Shaped and molded to fit into a particular place of their choosing in the land. Now this problem is part of the reason why churches across this nation lose their young people at a phenomenal rate. I don't know what it is. I haven't seen anything recently. 70, I'm making this up because I don't know. 70, 75% or whatever it is. Now, the people that give those statistics don't comment on how many that remain are, are lukewarm. So you take those that leave and those that are lukewarm, we, we don't have a real good track record here. And, and this very problem is exactly what brought forth the Christian school movement in the, in the 70s and 80s. Some of us were involved in that pretty heavily. Where pastors and parents, when they sought the answer as to why that statistic happened to apply to them and their denomination, they concluded it was a secularization and humanization of the schools. And so there was a major exodus in that period of time out. Several years ago, and Brother Joel, the brothers may remember more clearly than I do, there was a research project by Barna Research, I think, I'm guessing five years ago, something like that. Uh, according to their findings, now listen to this, 92%, 92% of Christian youth who said that they had had a, 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 a meaningful experience with God said they didn't believe in moral absolutes. 92%, only 8%, even those that had said they'd had a meaningful experience with God, only 8% said they believed in moral absolutes, as it was as defined in the, in the scriptures. No wonder we're raising a nation of relativists and you can see it. I've lived long enough to see it even in my lifetime, generation, every decade or two or so. Slippage here and a slippage there. And worldliness and this and that. And the, well, you know. So where do you see yourself living? And what are, we, what are we preparing our children for? Where do you see yourself residing? Now, <clears throat> Exodus then records a third compromise. It's in chapter 10, verse 24. Pharaoh said, go ahead, go sacrifice to God, even take your little ones with you. Go sacrifice to God, even take your children with you. <clears throat> but leave your flocks and your herds in Egypt. Now, Pharaoh knew that where their treasures lay, their wealth, their source of wealth, their hearts would also be there, right? God knew, on the other hand, they'd need to birth a means of support, not so closely tied to Egypt's flocks and herds. Because without that freedom that comes from the ability to provide essential support for yourself, God's people is not going to come all the way out. Partly because of the place their parents desire success, and where their hearts are rooted, and partly because nobody sees any viable alternatives. So they encourage then those qualities in their children that they think is going to help improve, find success in Egypt. They impart, even unconsciously, attitudes of competitiveness and, you know, assertiveness, self-assertiveness and intellectual pride and the like. 
because they believe that's what it's going to take to make it out there in the real world of work and academics. So, even if Christian parents regularly take the short three-day excursion into the wilderness to sacrifice to God, even if parents do that, and even if they take their children with them, as most parents do, they're going to still remain in Egypt because that's where they find their flocks and their herds. That's where they see themselves really living and rooted. Are you stunned? I told, did I tell you I'd start in the beginning? I'm going to express my convictions. So that's what I'm doing. That's what I believe. And that's what I've seen in the 40 or 50 years that I personally have watched this, making my own transition out of public schools and school administration and all that kind of stuff into the Christian school, homeschool movement. These are some of the things I've seen. It's true. And you wonder what's going on out there in the world. Well, this is part of the answer. Okay. But God's still calling us to a 21st century exodus. Calling us to a 21st century exodus. Because you can't really talk about a true, authentic Christian education unless you see it in the context of an alternative culture. Unless you see it in the context of an exodus and a pilgrimage from this world. So God's calling his people out of this world. He's planting us in a new land in an alternative biblical culture. Now remember, it wasn't, it wasn't until after God called the Israelites out of Egypt, after he called them out of Egypt, did they actually become his witnesses. It's after he called them, called them out. Before that, the Hebrews were indistinguishable as the people of God. Remember the Canaanites, Genesis 50. It was only after they passed through the sea and entered into the cloud of his presence, which is Exodus 33, 15, and 16, did they become a people that was distinct, a nation covenanted to himself. Now let me read that scripture to you. This is Exodus 33. Then Moses said to him, he's speaking to the Lord here, if your presence, now presence here is capitalized, so it's capitalized because it's personified as a living Presence, okay? If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else would distinguish me and, and our people from all the other peoples on the face of the earth? What else is going to distinguish us if your presence doesn't go with us? Understand what he's saying? Amen. And like matter, the church is going to remain indistinguishable as the people of God until they come all the way out. Practical ways in their hearts, their attitudes, all of these uh, unnamed ways we tie and attach ourselves to this world. So it's going to remain indistinguishable as the people of God until we come all the way out rooted in Egyptian soil. Now Moses... Listen, Moses did not stand as a witness for God while he remained heir to the throne of Egypt. I mean, he was, he was the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. Isn't that, isn't that right? Okay. 
So he was heir to Pharaoh's power. That's not where he became a witness. It wasn't his Egyptian upbringing, you know, that prepared him for God's service. It seems to me it was his separation from Egypt. It was his 40 days that he sat on the backside of a mountain in a wilderness. It was his meekness of character. It was his covenant with God that prepared him to lead Israel out. I mean, the scriptures refer to Moses somewhere as the meekest man in the world. What an incredible thing to have God say about you. The meekest man in the world. What is your goal for your sons? And your daughters? Honor, submission, meekness. Hmm? You know, when I don't I don't know how meek Moses was when he killed the Egyptian. So something had to happen. God sent him out of Egypt to the backside of a mountain to tend his, I think it was his father-in-law's, uh, yeah, goats. I almost said sheep. And I thought, no, it's goats. And God knew what he was doing there, wouldn't he? <laughs> so what's the goal for your sons and daughters? Because I guarantee you the world has a different answer and different goal in mind. Now, God brought his people out with signs and wonders, and he established those faithful in a new land, the land of promise. Only when the Israelites had become a separate people did Sheba come and see if what she'd heard was true about the glory of Israel. When she saw what God had done, she saw the wholeness and the order and the provision and the security what did she do? She says she cried, glory to your God. Glory, praise be to your Lord, your God. So our conviction here is that the restored New Testament church must become a community of believers covenanted together. A total nurturing habitat in which people can actually live out their lives together where everything in our lives will be a witness to the power of God's word, power of his love and his wisdom. And, and I'll add, this is the big and, and parents can begin educating their children to find their place, not in the kingdoms and institutions of this world, but in God's alternative culture. That becomes the goal, one of the goals of our, of our education, right? Let me read something here. Um, this is in conclusion. Here, in the context of the family, here in the context of a restored, restored New Testament church, authentic Christian education and parenting finds its cultural and its educational promised land. And parents and children together will sing the songs of Zion because they're no longer rooted in a foreign land. That's Psalms 137, I think. Now, 
Let me see. How are we doing time-wise? Okay. Let me suggest one thing, just for the fun of it. Let me suggest that you might go home and go on an archaeological dig. Why are you smiling? You know what I'm going to say, don't you? And just see how many of Egyptian artifacts that you've been carrying around. Not even paying any attention to the significance of them necessarily, but nonetheless, we don't want them buried in your floors. I can't remember who did that, but yes. And that you've been carrying them around as baggage, so to speak. I mean, years ago, I mean, years ago, I remember when the Lord started dealing with me about some of these things. I had this question. I formulated the question. I said, what in the world is the world? What in the world is the world? I said it over and over. And then it dawned on me. That's kind of redundant. It's kind of a redundant question. Anyway, I went home. And I went through my music, music collection. Then I went through my books. My catalogs. My closet. I think I even opened up the refrigerator. I, I think I closed it right away. <laughs> no, we, we, did, we did make some changes. But the Lord will show you if you ask with an open heart. Because on the exodus out, we don't, want, we don't drag this baggage with us. So that when the Canaanites who live in the land won't see you the same way they do everybody else. Okay, so God, parents, please help us, us parents. Let's don't leave our children in Egypt. And may the Lord please help us.